Hello and welcome to the 36th episode of Spurbs Herbs. Today we are having an interesting episode. We are going to be talking about Akori Kalamai Rhizoma or Shui Chang Fu or Shui Chang Fu. Uh, also known commonly as Calamus. I am, as always, your presenter, Dr. Greg Sperber. And so let's get into it without further ado. But before we do, I have a question for you. Have you ever wanted to give herbs to a patient on drugs? Do you have the knowledge and tools to do that effectively and safely? I am finishing up my drug herb webinar series, which gives you real world tools to answer these questions. As a beginning, the first course will give you an in-depth overview of how drugs and by the same token, how herbs work on and in the body. The second focuses on drug herb interactions and gives you a unique, powerful real world tool for assessing them. Now, I created this. This is a very unique tool. So very interesting for, for assessing them. This knowledge should be in every practitioner's toolkit. So I'm going to give you these first two courses, six hours of CUs for 30% off. They're already low priced. That means instead of $15 per hour, it's only going to be $10.50 per hour. That's a big savings. Just go to www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's Integrative Medicine Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org and put a slash 32 behind that to get this deal and get the discount right now. So that's integrativemedicinecouncil.org slash 32. But please hurry, this is a limited time offer. On today's podcast, this, as I mentioned, this episode is a little different from others we've done. It started with looking at a list of Western herbs and my choosing what I thought would be an interesting herb. Then I found out it is a relatively obscure Chinese herb as well, and a not-so-obscure Ayurvedic herb. So it's not only Western, it's also Chinese, it's also Ayurvedic. So we're left with an interesting herb with all these different uses of Western, Chinese, Ayurvedic uses. Not only that, I found Persian. It's a major herb in Persian medicine as well, herbal medicine. So a huge, very commonly used herb. So here is our first Multiple tradition herb, calamus or acori calamai rhizoma. And of course, we have our little something different. Today, we're going to continue our look at powder or Chinese herb processing. It's going to be an interesting one, so let's get going. In our last episode, we started to talk about powder or herb processing in more general terms, like why do we do it and what are some different broad ways of doing it. Today, let's get into some specifics. Let's talk about preparations made with the help of water, also known in Chinese as shui zhi. And shui means water, and zhi means preparation. So the um, water preparation, basically. This is everything we're going to be talking about is based on CNU's wonderful book, An Introduction to the Use of Processed Chinese Medicinals. Uh, and so let's, let, let's get into it. So shui zhi. There are four main water preparations. 
They all use water or other liquids to prepare various remedies. And there are five main objectives for using this and for, for using Schweizer water preparations. One, eliminate foreign objects and impurities. Two, eliminate disagreeable odors and tastes. Three, soften the plants in order to facilitate their cutting. Four, lessen their toxicity or side effects. And five, refine certain minerals. Uh, and I'm going to add in animal aspects. You know, there's some anima, a, animal materials as well. So these are all really useful uh, purposes, objectives for this sort of preparation. Let's get into the individual types of preparations. There's four of them, as I said. The first of these is known as pao shi. So the first method is pretty simple, rinsing and washing or pao shi. This is used to eliminate foreign op objects and impurities, remove salt, especially like with seaweeds and things along those lines, and lessen disagreeable odors and tastes. This is not a suitable method for flowers as they are too fragile. Just rinsing a flower will damage the flower. So that's, that's pretty much it for Palaxi is rinsing and washing. And we do that a lot uh, when we're preparing herbs. Our second water processing method is moistening or munrun, M-E-N-R-U-N, munrun. This method causes progressive penetration of moisture from the outside to the inside of an herb and can be accomplished by spraying, percolation, washing, soaking, dampening, steeping, or covering with a damp issue, among other possibilities as well, etc. Control the temperature and humidification is important to prevent fermentation and mildew. So it shouldn't be, should be at specific temperatures for a specific amount of times with specific humidity in order to not have fermentation or mildew. So that is just moistening, nothing major here. Our, our third method is soaking or gin pao, where herbs are soaked in clear water or aqueous solution. Steeping or short, short soaking is for the most fragile of materials. Soaking for a long time can help facilitate cutting, softens everything so it's easier to cut, lessen toxicity, and eliminate non-medicinal parts of a particular herb. The length of soaking depends on the texture of the remedy, the amount of humidity, and climate. So again, not super magical or anything. We're soaking herbs, but very important in our herbal preparation as we go along. And our last form of water preparation is aqueous trituration, trituration or shui fei. This is triturating certain minerals and shells in water. So I wasn't particularly familiar with this word triturating, um, but I'm about to explain the method here. So hopefully we can, we can get to understand this triturating here. Uh, this happens by pounding the original material and then adding it to a mortar with water and pestled until there are fine particles in suspension on the surface of the water. The suspension is skimmed and the process is repeated until there is a little residue remaining. In other words, you're just trying to pound this with water and just skimming the, the lightest substances off the top. Finally, the fine powder that you skimmed off the top is dried. That's the, the ultimate goal here. 
This is used for hard materials which are water insoluble, such as minerals, shells, and animal products. The goal is to facilitate the extraction and assimilation of quote-unquote active principles. So the, the active parts of, the, of the, the actual mineral shell or animal product. So to facilitate the extraction and assimilation of active principles, lessen the irritating effect of topical uses and facilitate the production of certain pharmaceutical specimens such as powders, compressed tablets, and pills. In other words, this fine powder that is skimmed off the top it can be used straight as a powder or it can be compressed into a tablet or made into pills. So it's actually um, much more readily usable than, say, a big hard mineral or animal product or shell. So it's, it's to make it more useful in all these different forms. And that's it. That's all we're going to talk about today. Uh, that's another entry in our exploration of herbal processes. We'll continue this in our next episode by discussing preparation made with the aid of fire. Would this something a little different over? Let's get into today's herb, which, as I mentioned, is calamus. So calamus comes from the family Ariaceae or Acoriaceae. We're going to tell you why there may be two different kinds here. The species we're particularly interested in is called Acorus calamus L., um, the capital L, uh, that refers to the biologist who first categorized this. And as you, as you may have noticed, at the beginning of this course, I called it a corycalami instead of a chorus calamus. Same thing, one's plural, one's singular. So um, generally, if you look it up in different books, some books will say a cori, some will say a chorus, uh, all the same species. So even if there's that slight differential, it's all the same species. Uh, the medicinal part we're particularly interested in is the rhizome. And if you're not familiar with the rhizome, you know, as a Chinese herbalist, we use rhizomes all the time. And I realized I didn't know the botanical definition of a rhizome. So really what it is, it's uh, an, a stem that grows under the earth. So it's not a root. It's a stem, but it's not above the ground. So it has, it's, that's really what a rhizome is. So it's really interesting. At some point, I'm going to get into a lot of botany, I think, in these verbs, herbs, but not quite yet. So the English translation of the Chinese word for this, for this, this herb, um, that Chinese is shui chong pu. Uh, the English translation of shui chong pu is watery, flourishing, so shui, remember I just mentioned, means water. So that's a watery, flourishing reed, shui chong pu. Other names for this herb are sweet flag, both spelled with a space, so two different words, sweet and flag, and sometimes I've seen it in different books um, put together. So sweet flag uh, as one word and sweet flag as two words also known as sway. There's a lot of different names for this. Sway, muskrat root, sweet sedge, grass myrtle, myrtle flag, sweet grass, sweet myrtle, sweet rush, sweet root, sweet cane, gladon, pine root, sea sedge, myrtle sedge, cinnamon sedge, bitter pepper root, a chorus, sweet calamus, bee wart, wild iris, Japanese, and again, I don't know how to pronounce this well, sui shobu, and in Korean, uh, Su Chang Po, 
In Sanskrit or Ayurvedic, it's Basha, B-A-C-H-A. And in Chinese, a couple other names include Bai Chang Pu or Bai Chang for short. So those are all different um, ways. And you see there's just a lot of myrtles and sweets and uh, you know uh, sedges and all the different formations of those. So it's, it's an interesting, a lot of different interesting names for this one. So chorus, which is the, the uh, genus name, is derived from Latin, which is itself derived from a Greek word meaning pupil of the eye because the juice of the root was used to treat diseases of the eye. So this means, of course, means pupil. Interesting. Calamus is also derived from the Greek word meaning reed, which in, in Greek is kalamos, and similar to the Latin word for stock, colmus, C-U-L-M-U-S. Uh, so that's where these, these, the, the Latin uh, name for this is derived from. So remember I used several um, big textbooks. One of those is by Bensky and his team. That's the Materia Medica, the Chinese Herbal Materia Medica. And they say it is part, this herb is part of the aromatic substances that open the orifices category of herbs. I've always found this category of herbs very fascinating. It's one of the last ones in the book, and it's interesting because, um, you know, when you're studying this, it's a very large book. And I always found that I was really, really know everything there is to know about the first several chapters because you're just so into it. It's new and exciting, and you just really learn that stuff really well, and you learn it, and you relearn it in your tests and all that stuff. Um, but this is one of the last chapters in the book, and I never quite, I, I feel like it wasn't emphasized when I was going through the program, and I, I can't say I, I ever got it quite as well as some of the other categories of verbs, but I'm fascinated about it because of that. It's a very different category of verbs uh, because uh, it's just, it's different. You know, most of our herbs are getting something out or moving something or, or tonifying something. This is something that opens the orifices, which I think is a really interesting concept. So that's Bensky's uh, category for this. Um, Chen and Chen uh, similarly say it is an orifice opening herb. So that's the category or orifice opening herbs. And Bren Wiseman, uh, another one of our textbooks, say it is an orifice opening medicinal. So they prefer the word usually medicinal as opposed to herb uh, in their book. And uh, for good reason, um, a, a lot of our medicinals are actually not herbal. Um, herb implies plant-based, and some, as we know, are mineral or even animal-based. And so herb is, I, I tend to use the word herb in a broader sense, but I think medicinal is probably a more accurate way to say that. In this case, we are talking about an herb, but some of them, uh, some of the quote-unquote herbs in this category are not herbs. Um, so it's a, it's a good thing to say orifice opening medicinal. Don't fault them at all for that. So this is, as we mentioned, is part of the Acoriaceae family, but I also said Ariaceae. So let's talk about there's you know, we, we, we sometimes look at categorization of, our, of plants and animals as static, but it's not static, especially in today's age of genetics where we do genetic testing. We find things that we thought were related are not at all related. So um, very interesting. So originally the Acorus genus that we have here was placed in the Ariaceae family. However, that has changed, and recent classification places it in the Acoriaceae family. So... 
what's interesting about this is you will still find books that say it's part of the Ariaceae family. Um, and there are still classification systems, whole systems that still put it in the Ariaceae family. But the most accepted sy systems right now of, of recent, uh, a fairly recent uh, change has put it in the Acoriaceae family. Uh, and and this is this means it is the sole genus of this of this family that is of the oldest surviving line of monocots. So what is a monocot? A monocot is a chiefly herbaceous angiospermous plant. So an angiospermous plant is um, what are are like grasses, lily, palm. So not necessarily all the specific parts that we put to, so like a flower or something along those lines. Angiospermous, think, I like to think of them as grasses, you know, sort of thing. Um, and they have an embryo with a single cotyledon. I had to look that up. So a cotyledon is either the first leaf or one of the first pair or whorl of leaves. So a little um, whorl is spiral of leaves developed by the embryo of a seed plant or of some lower plants such as ferns. So a very technical term, the cotyledon. So this is an embryo with a single cotyledon. Uh, and again, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. I should have probably looked that up. Usually parallel veined leaves and floral organs arranged in multiples of three. So that is what a monocot is. And this is the Acorus uh, genus, is the sole genus in uh, of the oldest surviving line of monocots in the Acoriaceae family. So there you go, that's the family. So a little bit different. Back to Calamus. Uh, Bensky and his team says Calamus is acrid or spicy. The either one is, is uh, you know, you'll see it translated as both of those. Acrid, bitter, and warm, and enters the heart, liver, and stomach. Brandon Wiseman agree with these natures of this herb, while Chen Chen agree with these tastes and temperature. In other words, it's acrid, bitter, and warm. But instead of entering the heart, liver, and stomach, it says it enters the heart, spleen, and large intestine. So that's that's an interesting thing. You know, the spleen and the stomach in Chinese medicine are, are closely related. Um, so okay, they replace the stomach with spleen but the liver is not involved and they put it in the large intestine, which is a relatively more obscure, a, a, you know, it's not an obscure organ. There's only 12 organs. We know them all pretty well, but there's not a ton of herbs that specifically enter the large intestine. So um, interesting that it, it, it made that switch. So just, I, I like pointing out these sort of differences between these textbooks. because I think we learned something in those differences. Surprisingly, all three of our major sources agree that the dosage for this herb is three to six grams. And we're gonna see preparations for it, but when they're saying these Chinese medical books are saying it, they're generally saying in decoction uh, for the most part. And according to Bensky and his team, it was first mentioned in the miscellaneous records of famous physicians or the Mingyi Bie Lu around 500 CE. So um, that might be an, an interesting little thing to look at because uh, normally I, the Chen Chen is also a good source of where the first mentions of these herbs were. But this herb is actually a supplement to another herb. So it didn't have a full monograph on it and did not talk about 
whether you know where it was first mentioned. So I can't compare this. It's the only source I have uh, of where this was first mentioned was in Bensky's and his team's book. So it's interesting. And by the way, it was a supplement in that book as well. In fact, in all three of the major books, this herb was a supplement. In in Bensky, however, it was a relatively large supplement. So um, the others, like for example, Brandon Wiseman had um, the equivalent of a of a, a paragraph on this herb. Um, Chen Chen had um, about the same, maybe a larger paragraph, and Bensky had a good page, page and a half. So it was a good a good amount of it, but. Uh, the point in all three of these Chinese texts is that it's relatively obscure. Um, not that it's not used, but that it's not used as often as, it, as some of the other herbs. So there you go. So let's get into why we might use this right now when we talk about traditional uses. So Bensky and his team say it extinguishes the wind, opens the orifices, and transforms phlegm. That's one action all one action and then as another action it says they say and it promotes movement of chi and strengthens the stomach there you go so it's good for digestion in that context uh, while the other one is is a different context it's very interesting chen chen say it dispels phlegm opens sensory orifices strengthens the spleen dissolves dampness and kills parasites so it's an anti-parasite when we see um, some some modern uh, science that may, may uh, support that, or at least modern usage that may support that as well. One of the things that's interesting here, it says opens the sensory orifices. One of the things about this particular herb is that it has a very strong smell to it, and it's used in essential oils, but it's a, a very strong smell. And so um, that may be an aspect of how not just the, the herb internally opening the sensory orifices, but the smell opening uh, orifices and and by that we're talking nasal and of course the mouth can potentially you can uh, have some saliva with strong smells and tearing with the eyes all that sort of stuff so there you go Brennan Wiseman which I said has this this shortest um, entry on this also has relatively short uh, use you know traditional uses for it they simply say it has similar effects to Shichang Pu so that's the herb that this is the, the main herb that this our today's herb, so we're talking about Shi Chang Pu as the main herb. Today's herb, Shui Chang Pu, is under, in all three of these textbooks, is a supplement to Shi Chang Pu. So we're going to talk about Shi Chang Pu in just a little bit. Um, but uh, Brandon Wiseman just says it's very similar to Shi Chang Pu. And, uh, and, and we're going to see why that, that may be the case. So, uh, and, and you look at Shi Chang Pu, Shi Chang Pu, it says it opens the orifices and quiets the spirit, transforms dampness, and harmonizes the stomach. So not that far off from what we've been reading about from Bensky and his team in Chen and Chen. Now, another book that I'm bringing into this is called The Energetics of Western Herbs. This is by Holmes. I'll be referring to Holmes in a, in a little bit. But The Energetics of Western Herbs is a two-volume book. This is in volume one. And it discusses Western herbs in a Chinese context. Um, I think in a lot of ways, he puts a, a good Chinese spin on it, but sometimes he knows these herbs well, and I feel like he kind of combines Western and Chinese quite a bit. But it definitely does give a lot of insight into this. And, and of course, because it's in this book, 
it implies that it is a Western herb as opposed to a Chinese herb. So, um, you know, my original list of Western herbs that I took this off of, not, not wrong. Um, so, and I, and I hadn't heard about this herb for particularly as a Chinese herb. So I'm, I'm fascinated because it has all this, this stuff going on. But Holmes, in the Energetics of Western Herbs, has a lot of traditional uses for this herb. So let's, let's get into them. So he says, um, and, and these are all bullet points, and they're all s he lists them singularly like this. So one traditional use of this list is stimulates digestion, warms the middle, resolves the mucus damp, and relieves fullness, regulates acidity, settles the stomach, and stops vomiting. So all of those are going to be digestive functions for the most part, and that's one traditional use that he had uh, in this list of things. Number two, he says, promotes expectoration, resolves phlegm, promotes estriction and stops discharge, and opens the sinuses. So this is more lung issue related, you know, kind of opening up the lungs. Uh, and, that, and that is kind of a use of the, of, you know, the, the shirchangpu uh, that, we, that w this is a subset of. So I can see that. Here's another one that isn't really mentioned, but does make a bit of sense in Chinese medicine. Uh, in if you look at Bensky stuff, promotes urination and dissolves stones. So that is we've said resolve dampness in some of the things. That would be a a, a methodology of resolve dampness. So it makes perfect sense. But he also says promotes menstruation, and that's that sort of opening of of orifices and channels to move things. So that's that end. But he put it all in one. So I think he's kind of, this This one's like lower burner issues from a Chinese point of view. Another traditional use he had, uh, line of traditional uses, is reduces fever, clears empty heat, and generates strength. So that's an interesting one. And finally, he has a traditional use of this, of stimulates immunity, reduces infection, and antidotes poison, reduces contusion, those are bruising, and cold swellings, and relieves pain. So this pain relief thing is definitely something we want to keep an eye on. That is sort of a Western approach to this herb, um, though a lot of the Western is digestive and the other stuff we're talking about as well. So Holmes really has a lot to say about this herb and its functions. So one of my, my main sources from a Western herbal point of view is the PDR for herbal medicines. And if you're not familiar with PDR, that is the name of the book, The PDR. But the PDR was um, an, an older book. I don't know if they still make it or not. It's, it, it stands for Physician's Desk Reference. And the first and major PDR was for drugs, pharmaceuticals. They'd have this, I've had it for many, many years, uh, over several uh, editions. Very large book that has a lot of information about drugs, mostly from the manufacturers of the drugs, so it's it's interesting if you want to get their their point of view. But they do have other stuff, so they have one. They put out a PDR for herbal medicines, and that's where I'm taking this entry from, this information from, and and it's pretty good. It kind of combines it has Western herbs and Chinese herbs, um, and I and I like that they they put a, a scientific spin on it, um, but it also means that most of them are like you know reported uses and unsubstantiated uses and things along those lines. So um, it's not, you know, a herbalist friendly necessarily book, but I do think it has some scientific, um, I don't want to say support, but background to it. So 
There you go. So that's the PDR for herbal medicines. And they, uh, Wild and his team, who, who uh, are the editors of that, say this herb's unproven uses include dyspepsia. So that's, that is dyspepsia is stomach issues. Gastritis. Um, so, and that is dyspepsia um, uh, technically is, is regarding to um, the uh, peptic ulcer, dyspepsia. So that area, specific area um, of, the, of the small intestine, the gastritis, which is inflammation or infection of the stomach itself. And ulcers uh, as a T and externally to treat rheumatism, uh, gum disease, and tonsillitis. So that's unproven uses according to the PDR for herbal medicines. And they also say it's used in Ayurvedic medicine for dyspepsia as well and for worms, pain syndrome, and toothache. So we're going to get into that. Our next one here is actually from a textbook of Ayurvedic herbs. So the Yoga of Herbs by Frawley and Ladd say this herb acts as a stimulant, rejuvenative, expectorant, which means that it, it expectorates phlegm, decongestant, so that moves phlegm, basically, and mucus, a nervine, which so it helps the nerves, antispasmodic, so it stops spasms, and an emetic, which uh, an emetic means uh, induces vomiting, so that's an emetic. And indications, they say, include colds, cough, asthma, sinus headaches, sinusitis, arthritis, epilepsy, shock, coma, loss of memory, deafness, hysteria, and neuralgia. So neuralgia would be nerve pain is basically what we're talking about there. So lots of use, traditional uses for it. And it is actually considered a, a fairly common Ayurvedic herb from what I, what I read. So those are traditional uses for this herb. We have preparations of this herb. And in the Chinese medical books, again, not long entries, so I had to infer a little bit, but it appears they suggest decoctions as the main form of preparation for this herb. Usually they have a section on preparations, and, and they didn't really do that. Um, Bensky's really good at that and his team, and they didn't have that in this, this particular herb. Holmes um, is very good at explaining a lot of different preparations. So he discusses cold water infusion, warm long infusion, that's what he called it, a tincture which usually involves alcohol extraction, candy, making a candy out of it, decoction. Um, a decoction, if you're not familiar with it, is uh, uh, boiling it, in a boil water extraction, basically. Also, Holmes also says chewing the fresh or dried root and several external preparations, including baths, swabs, lotions, salves, and liniments. So those are all things from Holmes. So Holmes has a lot of different ways to prepare this, potentially. Frawley and Lad, that's the Ayurvedic approach to this, discusses preparing it as a decoction again, as a milk decoction. So instead of boiling it in water, you would boil it in milk. And also used as a powder, 250 to 500 milligrams, or a paste. So that's the an Ayurvedic approach to different preparations for this herb. So commentary on this herb. There's, because I have so many sources that talk about this herb, I do have quite a bit of commentary about this herb, so it's interesting. This is where the commentary to me is really interesting because it's usually where we see 
why it's used in, uh, as opposed to other uses in physics along those lines. So Bensky and his team has a fairly substantial commentary, and they say, this is a quote, despite the statement in the illustrated classic of the Materia Medica in the 11th century that it should not be used for medicine, a Cori Calamai Rhizoma, or Shui Changpu, has been widely employed in most countries of the world. Known as sweet flag in English-speaking countries, it has been no longer used to aid digestion, stop coughs, and treat gout. So we're going to see why they're saying it may not be used that much anymore. We're going to see that in just a minute, so hang on there. Uh, continue with the quote. Its use is similar in China, transforming phlegm, fortifying the spleen, facilitating the removal of dampness, and opening the orifices. This herb is used in the treatment of epigastric distension due to damp stasis, diarrhea, dysenteric disorders, wind damp painful obstruction, which is a specific Chinese medical disorder, epileptic seizures, palpitations. Palpitations are an unusual awareness of one's heartbeat and forgetfulness. Externally, it is used for sores and scabies. Not familiar with scabies. You know, I love it. It's a little um, insect that gets in under the skin and likes to burrow under the skin and lay eggs. It's a very, very nasty, easily communicable uh, insect uh, disease uh, it, and totally gross. Um, you see the little lines as it goes, and the little lines are actually filled with the feces of the scabies as it, as it moves along. It's just a horrible little disease and difficult to get rid of. Um, I've had to deal with it, uh, outbreaks. Not that I've ever had one, but um, certainly I've been uh, in areas where they've been and I've had to give advice on it. It's an interesting, interesting disease. Okay, so that's Bensky and their team. Holmes, as I, as I said, is, is actually has several pages on this herb, a lot of information. And he says the Arabian physician Ibn al-Bitr in his masterly work, Collection of Simple Re Remedies, circa 1225, comments on calamus root as follows. It warms the stomach and dissolves phlegm of that organ. It warms up phlegmatic blood and is useful for cold temperaments. With these words, he touches on the essential use of this remedy for promoting digestion by stimulating gastrointestinal functions and by resolving mucus damp in the intestines. That's Holmes' contribution and commentary on this herb. Finally, we have Frawley and Ladd. This is the Ayurvedic contribution, yoga of herbs. Um, by the way, I do have a, a several Ayurvedic texts, herbal texts, and uh, one of the, the big ones that I used did not have this herb as an entry, uh, which is interesting because Frawley and Ladd did, which generally is a, a smaller book than the other book. And, uh, and it was in, they're saying it's a fairly commonly used herb in Ayurvedic. So I was a little surprised that the other textbook didn't have it as an entry. So uh, again, it just, it speaks to this herb being sort of, sort of very common yet sort of obscure at the same time. It's a very interesting sort of commentary on this herb. So Farley and Ladd say, Calamus has been used in Ayurveda for many thousands of years, being one of the most renowned herbs of the ancient Vedic seers. It is a rejuvenative for the brain and the nervous system, which it purifies and revitalizes. 
As such, it is also rejuvenative for vata and secondarily for kapha. So some of these are very technical terms. I've discussed them before in, in, in Spurbs Herbs. I've had, we've discussed two other Ayurvedic herbs and went into a lot of this and those two Spurbs Herbs. So if you want to know vata and kapha, that's where to, to go is look at some of our previous Spurbs Herbs uh, on this. It is Trifala is one of them and uh, I'm totally forgetting the other one. Uh, but there's there's good good information on vata and kapha and some of the other tre- technical terms we're talking about here. It clears the subtle channels of toxins and obstructions. It promotes cerebral circulation, increases sensitivity, sharpens memory, and enhances awareness. It also helps transmute sexual energy and feeds kundani. So there you go. So very useful. And again, this is saying very commonly used for thousands of years in Ayurvedic medicine. So that's commentary. Let's move on to some comparisons. So the obvious comparison here is with Shirchang Pu. So this, or Kori Tatarinawi Rhizoma. So Kori, same genus as um, Calamus, but instead of a Kori Calamus, we have a Kori Tatarinawi. It's a, it's a good good word, but still the rhizome. Very similar, but different species of the same genus. And so that is a big comparison. Chen and Chen say they can be substituted for each other. And Brandon Wiseman also say they have similar actions. In Bensky's, they don't actually compare the two, but Shui Changpu, our calamus, is a supplement to Shi Changpu. Um, so it's a... The, the actual herb is Shirchangpu, and then they have after that herb, here's a commonly used, you know, similar herb is basically what a supplement is saying. And so um, it implies that there's a lot of similarity between today's herb, Calamus, and Shirchangpu. Um, Frawley and Ladd, uh, that's the yoga of, of herbs, say Calamus is sattvic. Again, that's a sattvic is a technical term again. And one of the best herbs for the mind, along with Bratni, go to Kola, for which purposes it can be combined. So they, they're combining, they're, they're, this is both a comparison. It says it's, it's very good for the, one of the best herbs for the mind along with go-to cola. Um, and also saying that this is a good combination uh, for helping the mind. So there you go. So uh, a, a calamus and go-to cola. combinations that takes us into combinations of herbs. Bensky actually and his team have several possible combinations for specific conditions, which include combining it with Coptus rhizoma or Huanglian, Bambuse, Concretio silicia or Tianju Huang, um, Haliotitis concha, Shirjue Ming, that's a, a shell, Scorpio, scorpion um, uh, is the common name, Scorpio is the Latin, um, or Chuan Shi can also be used with RSA Matis, Rhizoma, Preparatum, or Zhir Tianang Xing. It can also be used with um, Pogo Stamonis, slash Agastachis Herba, Bo Xiang, and Citri Reticulata Pericarpium, or Chen Pi. So these are all, a lot of these are very similar, or very useful herbs in Chinese medicine. I think it's interesting its combination with scorpion. Scorpion very powerfully opens up uh, channels 
and this has sort of a, a use along those lines as well. So that's combinations according to Bensky and his team. Holmes also discusses several combinations. He recommends its use with directional remedies such as Dongwe and Dingxiang. Um, Dongwe is Angelica and uh, Sinensis, and Dingxiang is, is uh, clove uh, for warming the middle and dispelling stomach cold. Uh, also, uh, he recommends it with Sha Ren and Ho Xiang. Sha Ren is cardamom. Uh, not necessarily the spice cardamom, but in that family. And Ho Xiang, we just mentioned the Pogostemia and Agastaches. Um, uh, that's uh, um, totally blanking on that. Uh, it's a common, it's going to come to me. It's a common herb. Um, patchouli, that's what it is. Ho Xiang is patchouli. Uh, for fragrantly resolving spleen damp. And also with marshmallow root, which is definitely a, a Western herb. And shurhu or dendrobi, Chinese herb, for moistening the stomach and relieving dryness. And finally, for with shanyao, which is uh, uh, a drain damp herb in Chinese medicine, and wuyao, which is um, is a moving herb for circulating the qi and relaxing the intestines. So shanyao, wuyao, and Calamus are great for circulating the chi and relaxing the intestines, according to Holmes. So those are our combinations. Let's step into a little bit of science here. So there are biomedical indications for this herb. According to Holmes, it is restoring, stimulating, stringing, which means it holds things in, decongesting, relaxing, and dissolving. So these are some of the biomedical if that sounds a little off, that's often my understanding of how Western herbs are, are looked at is in these kind of functions. So uh, found a good uh, uh, scientific paper by uh, Mukherjee and their team that say calamus possesses aphrodisiac, diuretic, which means making you pee, antispasmodic, stopping spasm, anti-rheumatism, so that stops arthritis and things along those lines, anti-eczema, and anti-helminthic activity. Anti-helminthic means uh, helps worms, stops worms um, activity. So a lot of uses there. They continue to say it has been used for beneficial role in mental ailments like epilepsy, memory disorders, poor learning performance, and its anti-aging effect. So lots of different potential biomedical uses there for this herb. Again, on most of these, the, the, the science, the research isn't there. We're going to talk about the science in just in our next slide. Um, there's not a ton of science around this at this point, but these are sort of traditional biomedical indications for this. So let's get into the science here. So calamus appears to have an antibiotic effect against MRSA. MRSA means methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, and this is one of the quote-unquote, superbugs we're worried about. And so if calamus has an antibiotic effect against MRSA, that's a good thing because a lot of our antibiotics will not affect MRSA. So if we can um, use something more, more herbal and less medicinal uh, for treating MRSA, that's a good thing. It gives us another tool in our toolkit. So, uh, And this is according to Chen Chen. Uh, and they also say it potentiates the antibiotic effect of chloramphenicol. So, you know, we often talk about drug-herb interactions, and we are going to talk about drug-herb interactions in just a minute. 
But one of the things that we forget is sometimes drug herb interactions are positive. They're good interactions. And that's really what we're talking about here. Combining a, a, this calamus with chloramphenicol means that the chloramphenicol works better as an antibiotic. So there you go. So that's a useful drug herb interaction. So in vitro, so again, we've talked about the differences about in vitro versus in vivo. In vitro means in glass, literally from the Latin means in glass, uh, in, in glass, which means uh, test tubes. So this is not in live animals. In vivo means in life. So in vivo can mean either in humans or in animals. So generally, in vitro research is useful for us to figure out where we want to put our resources in looking in at in vivo studies, but in and of itself doesn't mean it does anything in actual humans just because it does something in a Petri dish or in a test tube or what have you. So just kind of keep that in mind. I always like to, if I can, put in in vitro or in vivo so we can start to get some context. And even in in vivo, if it works in animals, it doesn't mean it works in humans. So um, it's all context. But this particular uh, study that I'm about to talk about is about in vitro, in glass, so low-level evidence for human use. But in vitro, the essential oil appears to prevent platelet aggregation, influences glucose transport, and is vermicidal. Vermicidal is a, a different word for that anthelminthic, an, anti-helminthic that we just talked about, and it just means it, it kills worms. Uh, cidal means kill, vermi is worms, so it kills worms. And insecticidal, so it also kills insects. So now we're getting into that scabies that I mentioned earlier. So uh, vermicidal and insecticidal in vitro. However, this entry from uh, the PDR of herbal medicines says that animal experiments does show an antispasmodic effects, possible uh, central nervous system sedation, and a reduction in the ulcer index. It can help ulcers. And externally, it has a hyperemic effect, which means it brings blood flow to the outside. Helps uh, increase blood flow externally, basically. So that's from them. Continuing another study here by Pandit and their team in 2011 says various in vivo studies, so now we're in life, so that's a little closer to humans, that's good, doesn't mean it's in humans because it specifically says in vivo studies on animals and in vitro studies have demonstrated that a calamus or a chorea calamus or a chorus calamus has protective and therapeutic effects on cardiovascular diseases. So this was a particular paper about use of calamus for cardiovascular conditions. And they say these include lowering blood pressure and blood cholesterol and triglyceride levels, anti-inflammatory and antiplatelet effects, and as an antioxidant that helps the, the uh, cardiovascular system. So what was nice about this paper was it's a review paper and generally a review paper is good because it kind of combines other papers, but this is a literature review, um, which doesn't actually change any of the numbers or anything. So it's an interesting um, pointer. And I think it's interesting that it has cardiovascular effects, but I don't want to put too much on this. I think it's a pointer of where we should do some more research but I don't think it proves anything. It just shows that there may be some of these positive effects in the cardiovascular system with this herb. All right, so that's our science. Contents, there's a lot of contents and probably the most important uh, content constituent, uh, medical constituent in calamus are the volatile oils in calamus. Camphor, it has some camphor in it, is an important medicinal oil. 
Um, beta-acerone, we're going to talk a lot about beta-acerone, uh, appears to be a concern for toxicity as discussed later. Um, there are also alpha and gamma acerones, uh, acerone and beta-gergens uh, as volatile oils. And they are, you know, the acerones, all the alpha, especially alpha and beta-acerone are supposed to have positive effects, but we are worried about the toxic effects. We're going to talk about those in just a minute. Additionally, there are many organic acids, including uh, myristic acid, palmitic acid, palmitoloic acid, stearic acid, oleic acid, linoleic acid, and ar arachidic, uh, arachidic acid, arachidic acid. That's A-R-A-C-H-I-D-I-C, arachidic acid. Those, if you're, if you're um, you know, some of the uh, um, fatty acids that we talk about, um, positive fatty acids. Some of these are those positive fatty acids have been shown to be helpful for, for human consumption. So those aren't bad. <coughs> the distinctive odor, there's a very distinctive odor from this particular herb. It's primarily due to unsaturated aldehydes. And one of the ones that's considered the strongest of those is ZZ47-decadienol as an uh, uh, unsaturated aldehyde. And aldehydes are often what our noses are sensitive to with smell. So that makes sense. That this would be part of that. All right, let's talk about drug herb interactions of this herb. There is some low-level evidence calamus moderately inhibits cytochrome P450, 2D6, and 3A4. So if that doesn't make sense to you, I, I talk about cytochrome P450 a lot on these uh, podcast, but also a lot on my drug herb interactions. It's one of the major targets for drug herb interactions. In fact, when it comes to herbs, there's been very little research on, there's four or five major targets of drug herb interactions. There's been a lot of research on only really two of those when it comes to herbs. <coughs> the cytochrome P450 is one of those. 3A4 is the most commonly utilized cytochrome P450 enzyme. It's an enzyme uh, that's used to break down drugs. And so uh, an herb affects the breakdown of the drug, it means either more or less the drug is going to be in the body. So we're a little bit concerned about the fact that this moderately inhibits 2D6 and 3A4. Uh, there was one paper in 2018 by Schwai and, and their team uh, that discussed P-glycoprotein inhibition. So this is another one of those five targets that we're looking at for drug herb interactions. Um, it's the only paper that really did it, and it, and it as I read it, I think it's just one constituent. So it's like, yeah, there may be some P-glycoprotein inhibition. That's important for us to know for drug herb interactions. But eh. uh, first of all, that's one of the of the five that's probably the weakest of the, the interaction issues. Um, but also, it, one paper does not an interaction make. So um, both of these, I think, are important for us to keep in mind. But maybe not overemphasized because there doesn't seem to be a lot of repetition or substantiation of these. And I know for a fact, at least the first, the cytochrome P450 interactions were all in vitro. So it doesn't mean it would do anything in, in humans. And along those lines, Gardner and McGuffin, which uh, they wrote or edited the American Herbal Producers Association basically safety manual for herbs, really good for looking at the evidence of whether an herb is safe or not. And they say this herb is an interaction class A, meaning no known interactions. And so um, that, that book kind of came in between the two papers that I'm talking about. So it was written in 2013, paper looking at cytochrome P450 interactions was written in 2011. So if they deemed that to be strong, that should have been in the book. And the 
paper on P-glycoprotein inhibition came out in 2018, so that was well after the this uh, book was done. But in general, I'm I think we need to be aware that there's some potential interactions here, but I don't know if there's strong indications of drug herb interactions with with calamus. But that doesn't mean there aren't concerns, which we're going to talk about right now. There are considerable concerns regarding this herb. Bensky et al., Bensky and his team say, uh, the volatile oil of the Chinese Acorus races, so all the races in Chinese Acorus genus, is rich in beta-acerone, up to 80% um, beta-acerone. Now, remember I told you that was one of the volatile oils that's important in this, in, this, in this herb. And it says, due to its carcinogenic on rats, mutagenic on mutagenic, so carcinogenic means it causes cancer in rats. In this case, mutagenic means that it actually changes genes. No, that's even worse than carcinogenic. On bacteria, though, and chromosome damaging on human lymphocytes. So again, in vitro, but we have a lot of indications here. Um, so it's carcinogenic, mutagenic, chromosome damaging properties. This herb must be regarded as highly problematic. To minimize or avoid any risk, the American race, Acorus calamus L. var americanus, can be used. So this is a variant, that's where the var comes in, of our species today. So there's the species Acorus calamus L. That's the species we've been talking about throughout this entire sp uh, episode. But there's a variant that is north, grown in North America, uh, it's var americanus, does not have this beta-acerone in it. So it can be used. That's the one if um, most people are saying is safe to use in this one. We'll see a couple others of these as well. Overdosage and long-term use uh, of uh, Shui Chang Pu should be avoided. So that's a major concern. That's from Bensky and their team. They also say to use uh, with caution to those with profuse sweating, spermatorrhea, or yin deficiency with ascendant yang. So that's from Bensky and his team. Holmes has a long paragraph of caution as well. He says, acerone is cumulatively toxic. In other words, it, it builds up in the system. So cumulatively toxic. And this herb should not be taken on its own indefinitely at full continuous doses. Normal use in small doses along with other herbs, however, may be safe indefinitely. He also says, as an essential oil, only the North American variety should be used. That's that var americanus that we just talked about. Grunewald et al., that's the PDR, the uh, physicians just referenced for herbal medicines, say that there are no known hazards when used appropriately with proper dosages. They do say long-term use should be avoided and malignant tumors did appear in rats when the oil was given over an extended time. So we are concerned about that. And then finally, Gardner and McGuffin, that's the APA, the uh, American Herbalist Producers Association Safety Manual, give this herb a safety class of three. Their lowest rating, the safety class is one, two, three. So this is the lowest rating, which says it should only be used under supervision of a qualified expert. They repeat the concerns about beta-acerone being carcinogenic, mutagenic, chromosome damaging. And they also say the North American variety is relatively safe. So we do have some concerns about this. I think in general, what we get from this is short-term use is probably not problematic. 
Um, if there's going to be any sort of long-term use and if you're going to do essential oils, you want to be using the Var Americanus version of this, the North America variant of this herb uh, in order to be completely safe. And that's it for our herb today. So in that's a lot. <laughs> we covered a lot. It's, a, it's an interesting herb. It's a useful herb. It's been used for thousands of years, according to uh, uh, Frawley and Ladd, Ayurvedic medicine, medical tradition. And yet we need to be concerned about its safety profile as well. So in summary, what an interesting herb used in all major herbal traditions, mainly for digestive issues, but it appears to have many uses beyond that, including cardiovascular, antibiotic, anthelminthic, so that's that anti-worm, and pain-relieving properties. A variant of a very useful Chinese medicinal medical herb and commonly used in Ayurvedic medicine as well. However, there are safety concerns. There may be some potential drug interactions, but more importantly, long-term use should probably be avoided. And we continued our discussion of Paujur herb preparation by examining Shuizhur or water processing today. Next episode, we will be exploring a whole category of herbal formulas, nurse the blood and chi formulas. These are frequently used formulas, especially in gynecology, and we'll be examining this important category and comparing the formulas. And of course, there'll be something different where we will continue our exploration of powder or herb processing. So don't miss our next exciting episode. And with that, I'd like to thank you very much. If you liked this podcast, please do us a huge favor. Give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. We are available on all the major podcast apps. If you don't find us in your favorite podcast app, let me know. I'll get us on there. And thank you very much for, for, going, uh, for, for listening today. And don't forget, you can get this and 30% off our Drug Herb Series CUs and NCCOM PDAs at www.integratedmedicinecouncil.org. That's council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L. If you want that 30% off, just do a slash 32 after that, integratedmedicinecouncil.org, slash 32 to get the 30% off. And you can always get in touch with me at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com or at our website, www.spurbsherbs.com. Thank you. And as usual, I have my bibliography. Thank you very much. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins, Dobbins, Rogers, Campbell.